Amen. You may be seated this morning. So again, so grateful to be here with us all this morning. So grateful, brethren, amen, to have God's word in our hand as we always say, amen. Without it, we would certainly be drifting off in our own thoughts, our own understanding. And that's really one of the things that we want to correct this morning, amen, is a man's estimation of himself versus God's true and holy estimation. And that's really as we begin this morning. Radical depravity, sovereign election, definite atonement, efficacious grace, and persevering grace are without question divinely tied and tethered together. Each of these biblical doctrines, brethren, beget and build one upon the other. They systematically mark out God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, uh, if you will, infallible. Let me define that word infallible biblically. It marks out the Father and the Sons and the Holy Spirit's infallible, not capable of erring brethren, entirely exempt from liability to mistakes. Without the possibility of failure, it marks out their monergistic work in saving an elect people. We begin our conference this morning with the doctrine of radical depravity. Well, this doctrine of radical depravity is first because what it does is it places upon your eyes and my eyes the lenses through which we indeed see the natural condition of men, of every man, of every woman, of every child. This is what the doctrine of radical depravity does. Depending on what you believe about this and what God says concerning this will indeed dictate what you believe concerning the rest of the doctrines that follow. Now, as I have been accused of on many occasions, I've been accused of preaching dark sermons, and uh, uh, it's an amazing thing, brethren, because this doctrine, the doctrine of radical depravity, again, is very, very biblically dark. It's an amazing, stunning thing. In fact, I want us to listen to chapter 6, articles 1 through 4 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Listen to what these men, these godly men of old, brethren, whose shoulders we are indeed standing upon this morning. Listen to these words that they said and wrote concerning these things. Our first parents, being seduced by the subtility, subtility and uh, subtlety of, and temptations of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This their sin, God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel, brethren, to permit, having purpose, to order it according to his own glory. By this sin they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin, wholly defiled in all parts of and faculties of soul, and body. Now again, I thought this was very interesting, this next uh, section that they said. They said, they being the root, and that, brethren, is a most important deduction that these wise, godly men had made. They being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed. The same death in sin, in corrupted nature, conveyed to all of their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. And from this original uh, corruption. We are whereby utterly indisposed, 
disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, and do proceed all actual transgressions. Now again, that word root that they used was such a wise thing that they put in there. So our, our doctrine this morning, radical depravity, let me define that for you. The word radical comes from the Latin word meaning root. I don't know if you knew that or not. It's a quite, quite an amazing thing. It means to proceed from, to permeate thoroughly, thereby affecting the fundamental nature of something in its entirety. That's what radical means. Again, wise men of old, wise godly men, writing in these doctrines, in these documents, the root. Adam and Eve were the root. Adam himself. Now, depravity denotes and speaks of righteous incapability. Because all of us proceed from the root of Adam. There is by God's divine declaration, brethren, no one. Not one. And again, brethren, this again goes back to our estimation, man's estimation versus God's estimation of how he sees us in our unregenerate state. He, by divine uh, de declaration, no one has the, who has uh, the capability to bring forth any righteous affections or actions towards God in our unregenerate state. This is how we're born. And this is how God indeed it describes us and certainly defines us. The doctrine of radical depravity has to do, again, as I said, with God's estimation of us, not with man's estimation of man. And again, this is what's happened. The Bibles have been put away. Men have stopped being theologians, stopped studying scriptures, stopped looking and believing what the Word of God actually says, and instead begins to infuse their own thoughts, their own ideas into how God views us. Did, did God tell Adam that if he disobeys, they, they, that if he eats of the forbidden tree in the garden, that he was indeed going to die? Or did he say Adam's going to be sick? It's a stunning thing, brethren, when you consider this. Follow the process along. God told Adam. Eve told the serpent. What did she say? Hey, if we eat of that, we're going to what? Die. We're not just going to be sick and become a little bit incapacitated. What did Jesus say? Hey, let the dead go bury their dead. Walking dead men and women, brethren. And of course, Paul, of course, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, says that we are what? Sick in our sins. We're just not feeling well in our sins. We can grab ourselves by our own bootstraps and lift us. No, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. And it's a stunning thing again. But men, again, as they have put the Bibles away and have, if you will, infused their own understanding. Well, no, we're not really dead. No, actually, that's what God said. That's what Eve said. That's what Jesus said. That's what Paul said. All of them said that is our condition. And so again, how one understands this doctrine of radical depravity is how you will indeed view those wonderful, glorious doctrines that are to follow. I get to be the bearer of bad news. The bearer of bad news this morning. And again, I've been accused over and over again of preaching dark sermons. Well, brethren, amen, praise God, because what God is doing here with this, with this glorious text that we're going to be looking at, he's bringing every man low. He's bringing every man low that he then is what? He is glorified that he is indeed raised to his righteous glory when men understand what he's done for them. It's a stunning thing. Look there, if you would, Romans chapter 3. Look at verse number 9. Romans chapter 3, look at verse number 9. What then? Paul liked asking rhetorical questions. All through the book of Romans, actually. Romans chapter 8, I mean right here. Look at verse 9. What then? 
Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. Paul begins, again, as I said, with a rhetorical question. And then he answers his own question, which is a beautiful thing, brother, and will you consider this? He answers his own question by declaring the universality of our sin problem. He asks the question, and then he says, well, let me just uh, answer that for you from inspired writings. He says, we have before proved that both Jews and Gentiles are, are all under. And that language that's used there, again, the Western mind must be removed. You've got to think about what Paul is actually saying here. When he uses that term under sin, it's, it's really much more radical. It has to do with the titanic or tyrannical rulership of slavery of sin. We, brethren, we are tied to this thing. We are in slavery to this thing. It is a tyranny. It's full of tyranny and tyrannical moves and actions in our own hearts from which, brother, no one, from which no one has the capability to free themselves. And, brother, this really is where it starts. Paul lays it out there, the universality of sin, that we are indeed enslaved to a tyrant as we are born in our natures. Now, listen. This is by design. The Holy Ghost leads Paul here, as we all believe in the inspired writings of Scripture. God breathed, that they are the words of God, Go going through the pen of, well, here it would be Tertius, his, Paul's dictating, and he's writing this down. But listen, by design, the Holy Ghost leads Paul here to bring every person, again, can I say, low. I want you to see what he addresses. Every religious person, you know them Jews, for the last almost two and a half, well, over two and a half chapters into chapter three, Paul's been speaking of the universality of the sin. He says, are the Gentiles any better? Nope. Are the Jews any better? Nope. So he addresses every religious, uh, if you will, person out there, every unreligious person. Every non-religious person, every pagan, the Gentiles, the Gentiles, the pagans, he's addressing everyone, every atheist and brother, every moralist. And again, this is something we have to be careful of because you can be a good moral person, quote unquote, and not be saved. He's addressing them all. He's addressing all of these people, if you will. And he says, I've addressed all of you. I've addressed every person and every person, the whole world stands before God guilty in this condition. Look at verse number 19. Look at verse number 19. Now we know uh, uh, that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become what? Guilty before God. This is what Paul has been building up to. He's been speaking about this, calling all men, every class of men, everyone to account and to understand that they are indeed guilty before God. Now, verse 9 is just the beginning of God's x-ray. <laughs> and that's really what this is again. Again, keeping in mind, brethren, the whole thought here has to be not what I think of myself, not what I think of other men, but what God thinks of other men. That's ultimately what must be the overriding uh, uh, doctrine and understanding that we're talking about here. How does God view it? Again, how does he view me? And again, he just begins here in verse number 9 with this unbelievable x-ray. That's just the beginning of the deep look that we're going to see of the outer man and the inner man and the corruption of both. 
It's, a quite, it's quite an amazing thing. In fact, look at verses 10, 11, and 12. He lays the groundwork for this descent. Again, lowering men uh, where they need to be lowered to. Because when you understand how low we really are, when he saves your soul, you will have a glorious, amazing understanding of what God has done for you. It's just like one of the men was praying before we came out here. This doctrine, brethren, does not promote pride by any stretch of the imagination. Actually, Arminianism promotes pride because man steps in and has a way to help God with what he does. This is something that is totally a doctrine that makes one bend their knee before God and praise his holy name because God did the work. And when you understand that, you'll get a hold of what God is doing. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Working, per I, I like using this terminology. The liberals, I like using their words. They are indeed in perfect harmony. One does nothing without the other, and they are in perfect and total agreement, and they are indeed working together since they have the beginning of time, brethren, to save and elect people unto himself, a peculiar people. This is what the Bible calls us. It's an amazing, look there, 10, 11, and 12. Brother Howard, what time am I supposed to be, supposed to be done? 10.45? All right. Look at verse number 10. As it is written, brethren, that is such an important statement that the Holy Ghost leads Paul to write. Now listen, there is none righteous, no, not one. Count them, that's one time. Paul uses this Greek phrase to really help us to understand the depth of the darkness that men are really in. They're blind, unable to find even the wall that they stumble against. It's an amazing thing. But usually, let me ask you, brother, how many times does God have to say something before it's true? Once. So here in our text, we see it once. Brethren, he doesn't say it once. He doesn't say it twice. He doesn't say it three times. He says it four times to drive into our stubborn hearts what he is trying to convey, the depth of our condition in our unregenerate natural state. Look there, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. Verse 11, there's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. Now, brethren, unless you're unique and I'm not unique or different, what that's telling me is that no one does it. No one, unless you're special or you think you're special or whatever you think you might be. But according to God's estimation, none of us do. There's none that seeketh after God. Look at verse 12. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. <laughs> Amazing. It really is. Because, brethren, what Paul does here, as he always does, is he directs your and my attention not to his thoughts. Oh, brother, no. Uh -uh. No, Paul would never do that. What does he do? He directs our thoughts to where? To the word of God. That which is written. That which never changes. That which is eternal. That when I open it up tomorrow, it will say the same thing today that it says today to me. That which is written. 
he calls forth the Old Testament. He calls our attention to God's word, to God's authority, to his unchanging mind concerning this matter. God changeth not. His mind changeth not. That's why the word of God changeth not. His mind never changes concerning this matter. It is quite an amazing thing. And brethren, why is it so important that Paul would call upon the word of God? Again, brethren, I, I say this. Because man's assessment of men. Can I say, by the time we're all done, we're going to understand. Man's assessment of men changes. How many times, brethren? Well, as a pastor, praise the Lord, I've never said anything like this, but I've heard many say it. Oh, he's a good man. He's good. He's a good person. Very good. And you're looking at it going, no, 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 no. Men are not good. There's not one. In man's unregenerate state, we are not good. And there's so many, again, there's so many deeper things that we can touch upon here, but we're going to hit the tops of the ways for just a moment. Paul here quotes from the Psalms and from the prophet Isaiah, not to confirm a new doctrine, but rather, brethren, to what? To confirm an age-old doctrine that's been in the Bible since the beginning. Amen. Yes, from the very beginning of time. God has viewed men in such a way. In fact, one of the things you'll notice when, while we're going to look at it here in just a bit, the Bible does never, does never calls Adam righteous. Do you know that? It calls him innocent until his innocence is gone. And that's very important because it ties right into what he's saying here. It's a stunning thing. So Paul quotes from the Psalms and from Isaiah, not to confirm some new doctrine, but again, to confirm the age-old doctrine that, have been, that has been in our Bibles for a long, long time. Verse 10, he says, none are righteous, no, not one. What does righteous mean? And again, in this context, it's always in this context. It means a perfect conformity of one's heart and life to God's divine law. Literally, to be innocent. It's a stunning thing, brethren, when you consider that. God is saying there's no one who's innocent. There's no one who conforms to his law perfectly. Only one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why this is so dark, because all the gospel does is tell you tell you how dark it is, and then it, it, it just shifts you right on over to the one who is righteous, who is perfect, who is holy and good, who can save your wretched soul. That's the glory of the doctrines that come later. Brother Bruce and... Andrew and Brother Dean and Brother Paul, I'm the bearer of dark news, bad news. If you don't have the bad news, brethren, you will never rightly understand the good news and what God has done. You will never worship God in a right way if you don't understand your depth and our condition in God's grace and his mercy to us. You will not. Absolutely not. Verse 11, he says, no one understands. That means to have a just and adequate comprehension. Our minds are at enmity with God. 
In our natural state, Paul writes about it. Our minds are at enmity with God. There's only one who can change the mind. There's only one who can change the heart that is stone. And that is through the preaching of the word, the Holy Spirit goes out. He applies the word. Again, this is the Trinity of God at work. The word of God goes out. The Trinity of God then penetrates that heart. He regenerates that lost person. The one who is at enmity with God. The one who is an enemy of God. The one who indeed spit in God's face all along the way, which is brethren, all of us. Again, we prayed. We're all in this together. This is what Paul is saying. There's no pride. In fact, pride, every time it's spoken of the Bible, is spoken of ill. There is no, nothing ever good said about it. There's no pride. There's humility when you understand our condition. There's none who understands, none who has a just and adequate, uh, if you will, mindset towards God. Verse 11, he says, none who seeks after God. You know what that word seek means? <laughs> well, you know, it's English. It means to crave. Brethren, before God regenerated you, your creaturely will had you crave things that are ungodly. After regeneration, after God regenerates the heart, your creaturely will is changed, and then you crave the things of God. We're not robots. People accuse Reformed people of, well, you think we're robots. No, there's a change in the creaturely will. There's a change in the natural set of things. Those things you loved before your creaturely will craved after and longed after and went after has changed. Because the Spirit of God has changed within you and regenerated you so that your creaturely will now loves and chases and seeks after the things of God. This is the reality. Many people have a very confused understanding of the nature of men. They think old, the old grandma down the street, right, who's handing out candy and doing this and that, boy, she must be earning her way with God. She must have some, some kind of righteous uh, standing with God. No! None of us do. None of us do. That word seek means to crave, to intensely search high and low for, uh, by going from place to place. Now, brethren, what I want you to see, you remember earlier we defined that Adam, we come from Adam, from the root of Adam. And I want you to see, biblically, what our root did right after he disobeyed God. Did our root go looking for God? Was he, was he searching high and low for God? Was he looking here in the garden, looking over here in the garden, seeking God? No. You know what he did? He went and what? He hid from God. I want you to see this. And again, this is from the beginning. What is Adam Adam's hiding from God teach us. What does God coming down and saying, Adam, where are you? As if sovereign and omniscient God didn't know where Adam was. Of course, he did. Two things. Let me show you this. Look at Genesis, if you will. Look in your Bible. Genesis chapter 3. This is from the very beginning. Our root, brethren, our root acts the same way we act when we sin. <laughs> uh, brethren, uh, I can assure you this morning that if you could drop this thing down right here, the last thing I'd want to show all of you is my thoughts that I've had 
at certain times. My actions that I've had at certain times. I want to what? Hide those. You can't hide it from God, but that's the reality. And this is exactly what our root did. Look at chapter 3 and read there with me, if you would, from the very beginning. Chapter 3, look at verse number 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was also pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took. And again, if you look in Scripture, you'll see a pattern. You look at David. Uh, it, it's an amazing thing when he, when he went in with Bathsheba. It's the same pattern. He saw it. He took it. Then he, he did what he did with it. And then he spends the rest of the time trying to hide what he did. Achan. The same thing. Go look at what Achan did. He went and he, he took the treasure, hid it underneath. The Bible says he took it, he hid it, and then he tried to hide it. It's an amazing pattern. This comes from the root, from our parents. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was just pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of it, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons again. The first religious act that man does after he's sinned and disobeyed God is become religious. He, by his own will, by his own covering, is going to try and cover himself. God, no, you can't do it. I will provide the covering. But look, verse 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Now look at verse 9. What does verse 9 tell us about men are root? Verse 9. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And again, sovereign God, omniscient God knows exactly where Adam and Eve are at. He's calling them out to find out where they're at. Look at what he says. He said, I heard thy voice in the garden and was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Again, what do we glean from the very first religious act in Scripture. The very first disobedience to the perfect law of God. Those who were innocent are no longer innocent. What do we glean, brethren? Well, first of all, it tells us that man is lost. <laughs> That's the first thing. Again, we hide ourselves. We hide our sin. We hide from God. We try to hide from God. No, brethren. So man indeed is lost. Secondly, it tells us, as we understand from Scripture after Scripture, that it is God who seeks. It is God who seeks. Men hide. God seeks. Again, his work, his monergistic work in the salvation of men is just a most stunning and amazing thing to behold. Right from the very beginning, God's work is on display. Quite an amazing thing. Romans chapter 3, look at verse 12 there. We'll, uh, I'm going to have to boogie along here. Look at Romans chapter 3, look at verse number 12. Paul continues here in our descent, in our corruption from the root. Look at Romans chapter 3. Look there again, if you would, at verse number 12. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. 
There's none that doeth good, no, not one. What an amazing thing, brethren, when you consider this. All men, because they do not seek God, because they do not understand God, they will, by their own creaturely will, I say that again, they will, by their own creaturely will, not robotic, creaturely will, those things that they love, those things that they think, they will indeed, as Paul says here, that the, that the Spirit of God wrote back in Psalms, that they will indeed, they will go and turn aside. They will turn to what they think and what they understand to be right. And we all know what the Bible says, don't we? There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, and what? Doth lead to death. Yes. This is what the unregenerate mind does. It thinks of its own ways, and all you find there is death. This is what comes. It's an amazing thing. They become unprofitable. Listen, brethren, that word means to be in a condition of producing no gain for good. What's the, what does it say right after? See how Paul is chaining these together. Right after that, again, unprofitable. There is no uh, producing of gain for good. Look at verse 12. And then he capsi- uh, really brings it to the top. They are all gone out of the way. They're all together become unprofitable. It's a state of not being able to produce any good. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. What a glorious string of bad news. You say, well, that's amazing. A glorious string. Yes, a glorious string of bad news. Because again, can I say it? The doctrines of grace are all chained like the golden chain of redemption. They are chained together. And one begets another. And all that happens once you figure out and understand the depth of your sin and where you're at in God's, in God's uh, economy, His estimation of you, all you can do when Brother Bruce comes, when the rest of the brothers come, is rejoice and glorify God for what He's done. That's the purpose. This is the reason that this is in Scripture. I want you to see this. He quotes Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Psalm 140. But I want you to turn to me. Look at Psalms uh, chapter 14. Turn there quickly. This is one of them he quotes. And I want you to pay careful attention to a word that he uses here in Psalm 14. As he's quoting it here in Romans. Look at Psalms chapter 14. Look at verse number 1. Look what it says. The fool has said in his heart. (laughs) Now, Brethren, see, we live in a Western English society. You don't understand what that means. That word fool denotes moral depravity, not mental deficiency. They got mental deficiency, but that word fool doesn't mean they're just stupid. They are morally depraved. That's how he starts it. Has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looketh down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand. Anybody have a proper, righteous understanding? Nope. God looks down? Nope. Unless you're special. Unless you're some kind of a special human being, and I promise you, you are not. (laughs) Sorry to wreck your self-esteem and pride this morning. We need more of that, though. We need the Lord to step on us. Pride-filled. Arrogant. Look at verse 3. 
They are all gone aside. They're all together become filthy. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. You realize, brethren, that radical depravity begets inability. That's what it does. Radical depravity begets inability. God says there's none. None do good. None seek after him. None understand him. Again, the gloriousness of the gospel, of what the fa- the, my fellow pastors are going to be preaching on. The glory of God, the glory of his work. Stunning thing. In fact, let me show you here quickly. Look at John chapter 6. I'm not sure if any of the brothers are preaching out of this portion of scripture, but I want you to see here. <laughs> I think this is Howard's favorite, <laughs> favorite chapter in the Bible, actually. I want you to see, brethren, carefully, three doctrines of grace in one verse. There's three doctrines of grace in one verse. Stunning. We could park ourselves here on John 6.44, and we'd be here. What does someone say? We should have a week-long revival, uh, a, a week-long, week-long confe- uh, you know, conference so we can just preach on these in depth. Look at the three doctrines of grace right in one verse, uttered by God himself, by the Son of God. Look at verse 44. No man can come to me. You understand what that is. That's radical depravity, total inability. No man can come. That's doctrine number one in one verse. Look at the next doctrine. Except the Father which has sent me, draw him. Now, brothers, we could go deep into this text, but I want you to understand that, again, Brother Bruce is going to be coming here momentarily preaching on effectual grace. That's what this is. No man can come to me, no one, except the Father draw him. This glorious work of grace that wakens the dead soul, the dead man, the dead woman, the dead child, that they might indeed come to life spiritually. Finally, look at Brother Dean's his, his doctrine of grace is here too. Look at what he says. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. I will raise him up at the last day. Amazing brethren right here. Persevering grace. God will raise his own that he has called, that he has saved. We are eternally secure in these doctrines. Because it isn't you who saves yourself. It isn't you who somehow uh, cooperates with God. It is because God is the author and the finisher of our salvations. It begins and ends with him, not you. You're the tail. If I can use, and I, no, I'm not even going to use that. I wouldn't use such an analogy of God. I like what one pastor said, and I've got to quickly get finished up here. If man initiates the search, then he does not seek the true God the God of the Bible. Instead, he seeks an idol that he has made for himself. And yes, brethren, that's what our churches are full of today. Miss Bonnie and I were having a conversation. Amazing how people can sit in churches, alleged churches, never hear the word of God preached. One stupid story illustration after another. And everybody, oh, 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 oh that's, that's such good stuff. They have no idea they're in a war and a dead sleep. Amazing. Can I, can I go off on a trail quick here? Many of you know Andy Stanley, I'm sure, or have heard of him. He had a conference last week, and uh, 
course, it's, uh, it's a uh, affirming, <laughs> sodomite affirming conference. Yep, that's right. And as I was watching another pastor, as he called him out, which we should have, well, we've been calling him out for years. He is a heretic. He's an evil devil. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Talks out of both sides of his mouth. He's, lo- he's the one James talks about. You can't have salt and fresh water flowing from the same place, brethren. You either flow the word of God or you've got something bad coming out. And this is what he did. But interestingly, I was reading some of the comments as some of the people who, one of the persons commented and said, I, was going, I went to that church for 20 years. And this thing started sliding and I'm listening to him and I started doubting myself. I started doubting the word of God. I thought I was wrong. And then they went and just said, we, we got to go check out this other church. And they went to a good Bible preaching church. And the man was stunned. And he said at the end of his commentary, we were lulled to sleep. We didn't even realize how far we had slid from the truth. That's why this, brother, that's why we have good pastors here. Pastor Bruce, all all of us who are pastors who believe in the word of God and preach the word of God because it is the power of God unto salvation, period. People say, well, you know, not everybody's going to get saved. Why would you preach the gospel to every creature? Well, because God said it is his power unto salvation. That's why. (laughs) It's not man's power. It's God's. Amazing, isn't it? I like what that pastor said. You're going to create your own God. Now look at here. i got to quickly, uh, if you will, tag along with me here. Look back at Romans chapter 3. Look at verses 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. I want you to notice the body parts. <laughs> I want you to notice the body parts, and I called it the inventory of body parts that are indeed infected by the root, which then reveal other things about us, the inner man. Listen here if you would. Verse 13, their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues, you notice, parts of the mouth. It's an amazing thing, brethren. You know why? Because the mouth is the organ by which the heart speaks. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's a stunning thing. You ever said something, oh, where did that come from? Oh, yeah. Well, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only one. Listen. Their tongues they have used, they have used deceit. The poison of asses under their what? Under their lips. Tongue, mouth, lips. Amazing, isn't it? The description that's here. Look at verse 14. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. That is exposing the inner man. And when the inner man gets exposed, then the actions of that inner man gets worked out, and look at verse 15. He brings their feet in. The mouth, the lips, the tongue, all of it, which then produces the action of the feet, the body. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and destruction and misery are in their ways, for the way of peace have they not known. Brethren, again, as we consider this portion of the text that I have to kind of sort of speed along, You say, well, I've never committed murder. 
<clears throat> really? Oh, no, I haven't. I've never stolen anything. I've never done it. My, my, my inner man has never caused me to do something like that. I think Jesus has something to say about that. And again, brethren, it's not my estimation of me. It's Christ and God and the Holy Spirit's estimation of me. Turn with me quickly to Matthew chapter 15. Just quickly. Look at Matthew chapter 15. We'll finish her up here. Well, almost. Look at Matthew chapter 15. Look at verse number 17. Do not ye yet understand? <laughs> you don't understand. You don't have a proper uh, mind concerning what the Lord has said. Look here what it says. Do not ye uh, yet understand that whatsoever entereth into the, and at the mouth goeth into the belly and casts out in the draught and the sewer? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart and defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries. Oh, brethren, yes. Oh, no, I've never murdered anybody. Have you hated your brother? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jesus takes it up a whole nother level. Do you see how none of us are innocent? You ever lusted after a woman? If you're married, you committed adultery with her. This is what Jesus said. Are you innocent of that? I can tell you that most men, especially in my lost state, that was the farthest thing I was innocent from. Look at this here. Fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemy. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. So again, Paul is using the descriptive language of body parts to show us what our heart really is like in its unregenerate state. Irregardless if we like it or not, this is what God says. This is his assessment. And finally, look there. We'll finish this up. Look at the last thing he addresses, that which is still filled to the brim with rebellion against God. Look at here, the last thing in verse 18. And this is really an important portion of it. There is no fear of God before their what? Before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Again, brethren, our eyes are the part of the body, amen, that sees to direct our paths to where we're going, where I'm walking, what I'm doing. Again, another part of the body. This is what it's about. Man in his unregenerate state gives no consideration of God in the direction he takes. Man plods his own course. Yes, according to his own understanding, he does whatever he thinks is right. And brethren, the fear of God, can I just say this and we'll close here. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. The place of having a right reverence for God. Let me show you what one acts like who has no fear of God. Look with me, if you would, in the book of Exodus. I want you to see what the, how the Bible describes Pharaoh. I want you to listen to the language that he even admits to. And yet, he will not repent because there's something missing. Look at here, Exodus, if you would, chapter 9. Look there, Exodus chapter 9. And again, just the systematic, if you will, tethering of 
doctrines together. It's an amazing thing. Look at Exodus chapter 9. Look at verse number 27. Right in the middle of the seventh plague of hail, darkness. Look at what happens here. Verse 27. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said unto them, I have what? Sinned this time. He's admitting to Moses that he sinned. And not only does he admit he sinned, look what he says. He says there, uh, uh, said, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and I and my people are wicked. <laughs> uh, Moses, I'm a sinner, and by the way, all of my Egyptian people are wicked. Listen, brethren, that's a glorious thing to understand, <laughs> that you're a sinner. This is, what, this is what this doctrine does. It causes one to bring one to the realization of that. Look what he says, verse 20, not 28. Entreat the Lord, for it is enough that we are no more, uh, we be no more mighty thunderings and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. And Moses said unto him, As soon as I am gone out of the city, I will spread abroad my hands unto the Lord, and the thunder shall cease, neither shall there be any more hail, and thou mayest know how that the earth is the Lord's. Look at verse 30. But as for thee and thy servants, I know that ye will not yet what? Fear the Lord God. The fearing of God is the beginning of knowledge. If you look in Scripture, and we need to finish up, if you look in Scripture, you will see what the fear of the God does to those who have been regenerated. It keeps one from sinning against Him. Again, it, it, it brings repentance, which Pharaoh, of course, was the instrument God had used. Amen? He was an instrument of destruction. But in reality, he still stood and said, I'm wicked, I'm a sinner. And I'm not going to repent. It's a stunning thing. Why? Because he feared not God. This again is the pattern of the unregenerate man. In fact, John Calvin said this. In short, the fear of God is a bridle to restrain our wickedness. So when it is wanting, we feel at liberty to indulge in every kind of licentiousness. Brethren, this is true. When you don't fear God, you will do things you normally would not do. Let me close. Let me just, if I could, give us a little summation. Man is born dead in transgression and sin. His heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. This is what the Bible says. He is held captive by a love for sin in the unregenerate dead state so that he will not seek God because we, in that condition, love the darkness. We do not understand the things of God. Therefore, men suppress. We suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. Man continues to willfully live in sin. Because, brethren, it seems right to them. It seems right to us. We will live that way because it seems right. So we then reject the gospel of Christ as foolishness. Okay, I know, maybe I'm the only one that when God was drawing me and, uh, and bringing me to salvation, I'd look at the Bible thumpers and say, oh, yeah, I watch a Jesus freak Bible thumpers, those sorts of things, until God opened my eyes to see the gospel. Amazing. The doctrines of grace build upon one another. The bad news we have just heard, again, the bearer of bad news. It is my stead today to do that. And I'm thankful that the Lord would allow me to do such a thing. This is making room for the good news that follows.
for that which we, brethren, will be on our faces thanking God over and over and over again for. God indeed is sovereign. God indeed is working his monergistic way to save and elect people unto himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the privilege you've given us to be together this morning. Father, to hear your word, which is so important. For it truly is the power of God, the gospel, the power of God unto, this, unto salvation. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For it is written, again, referring to beautiful Old Testament doctrines. For it is written that the just shall live by faith. So, Father, we pray this morning that as we have examined this, very lightly I might add, that you have, that the Spirit of God will indeed sink this deep down into our hearts. He will apply what we've heard. Oh, Father, bring these things to our mind, the Spirit of God. May he do that to us and for us. Father, now we pray as we break for a moment and we hear Brother Bruce, Pastor Bruce, come. Father, may you use him for your glory, for your honor. We ask all of these things now in the name, the Bible says that is above every name, the name in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God, our Savior, our Lord, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Uh, just wanted to say, you know, just we're going to have to little make a little change up because some unforeseen things, we got started a little late. So if, you, if you're following the bulletin, we're just going to make a little difference because, you know, it said the mic was going to be done at, a, you know, at 1045, and obviously it's after 11. We got started 20 minutes late. So just if you need to, uh, take roughly about a five-minute break, and then, you know, we'll come back. And we'll get back on schedule with having Brother Bruce start at, you know, approximately in about, you know, about six, seven minutes here. And he'll just go to 12 instead of finishing up at 11.45. So that's just a change. And we'll just break the break for lunch at noon then. Okay, so just if you...